So today I'm talking with Nikki Glover-Lobzowski, who is a former secondary math teacher and who completed her PhD in education with a concentration in the learning sciences and psychological studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2019. Her research focuses on designing advanced learning technologies to improve collaborative learning and understanding group level regulation processes. During graduate school, she co-led a team that designed, implemented, and evaluated a mobile-friendly application, Collabucate, to help students learn group level regulation strategies. This project was backed by a $25,000 grant from the Eshelman Institute of Innovation at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy and led to a manuscript in computers and education. For her dissertation, titled Building from the Inside Out, the Formation and Regulation of Emotions in Collaborative Learning, she analyzed the data collected from the Collabucate intervention, which built off her previous work that connected group-level regulation in science classrooms to argumentation discourse, which is now in a publication in Contemporary Educational Psychology and also her previous work on teacher presence published in the Proceedings of the 2018 International Conference of the Learning Sciences. She is the recipient of the 2021 Paul R. Pintrich Outstanding Dissertation Award from the American Psychological Association's Division 15. Currently, she's continuing her interdisciplinary work in designing advanced learning technologies as a postdoctoral associate in the Learning Research and Development Center at the University of Pittsburgh. She is currently working on a National Science Foundation-funded project that combines psychology, human-computer interaction, machine learning, natural language processing, and the learning sciences to investigate the factors underlying effective collaborative learning with a teachable robot. Today, we'll be discussing Nikki's 2020 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, Bridging Gaps and Moving Forward, Building a New Model for Socio-Emotional Formation and Regulation. So Nikki, thanks so much for talking to me today. Glad to be here. So can we start with you just giving us a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Sure. So previous models of emotions in academic settings focus either on emotion formation or regulation, but rarely both. So these models also often concentrate on the emotions of individual students rather than a group of students. So in this paper, I introduced a new model for the formation and regulation of emotions in collaborative learning, or the Freckle model. It was derived from existing literature in various subfields of psychology, including traditional, social, developmental, and educational. And at first glance, it kind of resembles emotional models that we've seen in psychology, such as Gross's process model of emotions, as it explores four stages of emotional formation, including the context and situation, the stimulus event, appraisal, and emotional response. And then there's a fifth stage for regulation. The Freckle model expands on traditional models for academic emotions by integrating this interpersonal level, which looks at how events impact me, you, and us within a group, either differently or similarly. And it it really includes important considerations for working with others at each stage in the model. And so by highlighting both the emotional formation and regulation, this model considers emotions from a, a holistic view, thus allowing a better conceptualization of emotions in group learning. And so my goal for this model really was to help researchers better understand emotions in small group learning, but also help inform the design of collaborative learning interventions and environments. So I I think this article is really interesting because you expand models of emotion formation into models of emotion regulation, and there's social pieces and there's interactions. And I kind of want to start at the beginning. You know, my sense is that a lot of educators and students and parents really struggle with collaborative learning. And, you know, everybody knows it's important to learn how to collaborate and, you know, students need to learn how to do that well. But, you know, educational collaborations often don't go very well. So I I can imagine your answer, but why do you think those collaborative opportunities in education often don't go as well as we might hope they could? 
I think a big part of it, and this stems back from my days of teaching, where we, you know, we would put students in a group and say, go, mm-hmm. and then expect them to know what they're doing. And if they're talking, then it works. Or not thinking carefully about like, does this activity need to be collaborative? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not the teacher's fault, right? Like that was me. Sure. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And so I think there's this really important piece about training students how to collaborate and adults, you know, for that matter, mm-hmm. and really kind of going through it rather than just sticking them together, crossing your fingers and hoping for the best or even worse, thinking like, yeah, they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what I kind of want to do is develop these trainings and working with teachers and kind of building these things together and, and really you know, bridging that research to teaching gap. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think it's it's absolutely the case that, you know, teachers are doing the best they can. And, you know, we, we can help them by providing them with tools and skills and, and ways of helping students learn how to collaborate better. So I think your article does a really nice job of making the case that emotions are uh, and learning how to recognize emotions and regulate them. Those are kind of key aspects of good collaboration. So I think the piece that may be a little surprising to some people is this idea of emotions as this kind of social phenomenon. So can you kind of explain what that means and kind of what that looks like? I think one of the things that my model highlights is not only that emotions are social, but how social influences impact the formation of emotion and regulation, like at every single stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so from, you know, the big picture of like interacting, right? So just you said something negative to me and I get mad. Like, I mean, I think that's the obvious one, the socio-emotional interactions, but even at a, at a level of like emotional tendencies, mm-hmm. each person brings with them different perspectives, different experiences. And so how they interact with yours could be similar or different. And then how we get over those together or separately. And so, I mean, even I'm of the belief that everything is social, that nothing, Mm -hmm. especially these days, are ever done in isolation. But even if I'm experiencing emotion, I'm completely by myself. I think so much of the appraisals that we have and so much of the situations are based on social concepts, right? So even Mm -hmm. if I'm appraising it against my goals, you know, my goals are likely set or influenced by other social factors. Mm -hmm. And so I think ignoring the social component, which especially for emotion, really constrains the way we express emotions, the way we discuss emotions, the words Mm -hmm. we use, the, you Mm -hmm. know, the facial expressions we make. I think it's really important. And you see it making ground with like the um, socio-emotional learning literature from a developmental psychology perspective. And you do see some of that training But this really is more about working together in a group to solve problems. Yeah, it strikes me that it'd be easy to assume that my emotional baseline, kind of the way I like to feel in a group is the same way that everyone else wants to feel in a group. But as you pointed out, that's that's not a safe assumption. And that, in fact, very often people have different expectations about the emotional climate or different words to express how they're feeling. And so I think that Emotion as a social phenomenon and emotion as being influenced by social phenomena is a really important part of your paper. And I'm glad you kind of bring that to light. I think a, a related piece is this whole kind of sociocultural perspective on emotions, which I think you you kind of mentioned. But can you elaborate on kind of what a sociocultural perspective on emotions in groups would look like? 
Yeah, I think a lot of the literature and the models that look at social regulation kind of looks at it more from a sociocognitive perspective. Mm -hmm. And so as, you know, someone who was trained in the learning sciences and, and has that like really deep emphasis on context, I spent a lot of my time really looking at that first stage and, and, and breaking it apart into all the different interpersonal factors, looking at the different tasks. And with that, actually, one of my favorite pieces of the model is this idea of a population. And it looks at, you know, where individuals nested within groups. And so people look at the individual emotions and they look at the group emotions. But then there's this other kind of cultural thing that's left out of a lot of, of literature that's really important that we're all, even when we're in a small group, we're coming from a bigger society culture that we bring in these similarities that need to be accounted for, right? How I learn with somebody I've never met versus how I learned with somebody I've known my entire life is going to be different. And so the population component, among some other ones, really kind of looks at the social cultural perspective mm -hmm. and and considers how culture and society and and how that's defined, I'll talk about that in a second, how that impacts the context and situation of the smaller group. Mm -hmm. And so by culture and society, that can be as small as like we're in the same class versus we're in the same school and we're in the same city. And mm -hmm. with that, you know, if you look at groups in, you know, the Southeast United States, and then you look at East in like the Southwest United States, there's different things happening that affect groups very differently. So if I'm in one class versus another class and something happens, you know, we have that kind of, for lack of a better word, bond because this thing happened to all of us, whereas it didn't to others. And so when we come into a group, you can't just leave your baggage at the door. You bring all of this with you mm -hmm. for better or worse. So maybe this culture that we've had, these prior experiences that we've had interacting are good. And as we've seen with some others, maybe they're bad. Mm -hmm. And so that really, even though it doesn't have as much to do with the small group, it's still sets a stage. So the context and situation is all about setting a stage for the development of emotions. Yeah. And like you said, people could have just simply different expectations or different baselines or different ways of expressing emotion. And if those things aren't in sync, then the group can have trouble collaborating, not because anyone's being difficult or intentionally trying to derail the group, but just because, you know, People aren't in the same place and they have different culture or different social experiences that are kind of influencing how they interact with one another. So that piece in your model, it really fleshes out that uh, initial set of components um, that can affect the ways that groups might respond to one another. And then, then you talk about stimulus events and how people appraise those events. And appraisals are, are tricky. So can you talk to us just a little bit about kind of what appraisals are and what role they play in emotion formation? So appraisals are the positive and negative cognitive evaluation measured against the individual and group's motivational constructs. And so what's really cool about this is you get to see, I think, you know, emotions are often studied separately or there's a priority a lot with like cognitive and metacognitive research. 
But you see how connected all of these things are really well in the appraisal stage. So let's say we're in a group learning together, Jeff, and something happens. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's somebody comes barreling through the door. Maybe it's that you get an email. Maybe we all get an email. Maybe someone replied all, you know, one of those. And Mm -hmm. something happens. So that's the stimulus event. And it may affect both of us. It may affect just me. It may affect just you. It may affect both of us, but differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe the reply all was something you really wanted to see and I didn't, you know. So, and that's kind of leads into that interpersonal level, which then stems to these appraisals. And so the appraisals will determine what kind of emotions we respond with. And so then you're going to evaluate the stimulus event compared to your goals, to compare to your motivational constructs. Like, does this event, you know, does it go against what I'm trying to do? Does it make me feel valuable or invaluable? And so those kind of motivational beliefs shape how you're going to interpret the stimulus event. And then that right there will then determine how your emotional response is formed. And so then also at appraisals, and this is something I drew heavily from the social psychology literature as well, is this idea of social appraisals. And so if we're in a group, you could have an appraisal different than mine, but Mm -hmm. just the fact that we're together and we're interacting could lead to me persuading you. So for example, if you're like, oh, another email, you know, I I could reframe it in a way that could help you see it differently and and, and form a different appraisal. Or maybe I could, like a mob mentality, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. You just get everyone on board, uh, whoever's the loudest, which unfortunately is usually me. And so the appraisals really kind of help you connect what happened to how you feel. Mm-hmm. It's the why. And, and that's super helpful. So thank you. And, you know, I, I think when you examine emotional formation from a social point of view, it's just really fascinating to think about how those appraisals can be different across people and then how people can affect each other's appraisals, as you said, right? There's this kind of like emotional contagion that happens that you mentioned in your article where, as you said, like I, I might be really upset about something and you might say, you know, Jeff, actually, I think this is a good thing. Let me tell you why. And my appraisal can actually change. And so I think your model does a really nice job of taking emotion formation, which is not simple. It's a, it's a complicated set of events and then broadening it to a social phenomenon and then walking the reader through how people in interaction can affect each other in terms of uh, interpretations of the stimulus event, in terms of appraisals and responses, et cetera. So I think all that's really helpful. Yeah, I'll add that I think of all of the stages and something that you mentioned earlier, I think appraisals are the ones that the connection to the social component isn't as obvious. Mm. And I think that's because of the cognitive aspect of it. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people think of cognition as very individualistic. I think what I think. But this kind of highlights how even my motivational constructs are shaped by others and how my thinking is shaped by others. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's it's a lot easier to see in some of the other stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was by far the hardest stage for me to wrap my head around. There was lots of reading in all the fields. Like some of the stages I, I borrowed from more fields than others, but this one really kind of ran the gamut of 
of all the fields of psychology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it strikes me that it, it spans fields of psychology, and as you mentioned earlier, so it can be informed in a social way by the groups that you're in or the groups that you share with the people in your group. It also has this social historical component that can be unique for each person where the culture and experiences they bring to the group can shape the way they appraise the stimulus event, etc. So it really is a a complex and rich phenomenon that I think if we if we don't take into account those things, we're probably going to miss a lot in terms of why groups are having the kind of emotional interactions that they're having. So, right, and you know, if you said something to me like, "Oh, great job, Nikki," and I, based on our previous interactions, if you if you usually say that sarcastically versus you don't, like I'm going to appraise that differently based on that context, the mm-hmm. the past interactions that we have, mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of the times when we are measuring appraisals and measuring these things, we again going back to that context, we forget about that or we don't consider it, mm-hmm. and it's so important mm-hmm. because you know, what I'm feeling in this moment is, which is a lot of things, but um, is really grounded in the specific context I'm currently in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. And, and you mentioned kind of like how we as researchers might measure emotions. And, and in your article, you talk a little bit about some unique ways of capturing emotions when people are in collaboration. So can you say a little bit about that? This has been you're you're asking the hardest questions today. Um, <laughs> How's that making you feel? Yeah, fantastic. All the emotions, Jeff. Good, all good. the emotions, none of the regulation. Um, <laughs> so every conference I've been to in the last couple years, I always try to hit up all the emotion presentations, and I I talk with them, and I have the same conversation of how do we measure emotions in collaborative learning in general, and it is just. Nobody has the answer. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have an answer. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this article, I mentioned the different ways. So some of the ones that are really popular right now are um, face reading, physiological measures, self-reports are very prevalent in the literature, um, observational methods. And so what I'm finding, and this goes into a lot of literature that's come out, there's been so much great literature on emotions here lately, is this idea of multimodal. You know, mm-hmm. you strengthen it. It's such a hard thing to measure that if you can combine different sources and kind of triangulate your responses, you have a much stronger case of like, yes, this is actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I will say, though, that again, always comes back to context. I think it's really important when you're designing a a research experiment to think about that. And so, for example, a lot of the face reading softwares are really meant for individuals. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm sitting at my computer, it's going to get a very clear picture of my face where how do I do that in a collaborative learning? So how would I design and have them sit in a way that can be captured? And and some of the, the softwares, you can't open your mouth. Hmm. It relies so heavily on the shape of the mouth to determine the emotion. And I'm like, well, how's that going to work in collaborative mm-hmm. learning? Mm-hmm. Like, don't talk. Um, and then also, too, I, you know, 
to have like full labs and to have all this, like not everyone has access to all these different tools as well. And then you look at the origins of some of these tools, like Face Reader, for example, was created by a white male. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't include cultural norms. So Mm -hmm. can we apply something that was designed by a white male in, I think, the US to a completely different culture around the world? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's been used enough and and those kind of things, but, you know, how do you even validate it? Again, that's what we're saying is like, there's no gold standard yet to validate it against. So I think we're still trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. But I think the more we can gather, the better. Some other things I've seen is using physiological measures, but physiological measures, if you go into the uh, response part of the model, of the freckle model, Mm -hmm. you can see that those measure like heart rate and temperature and things like that. But it doesn't measure the emotion. Um, so just because I have a high heart rate, am I happy? Am I angry? You know, you right. really can't tell. Right. So you need that other piece to provide context. You know, whatever you know, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. The other thing too is capturing that individual differences. And so if you come in and you strap me to like, um, I think the wristbands or something like that to get my heart rate, how do you know if it's to capture a baseline heart rate? That takes time in and of itself. Right. And then again, it all goes back to my experience as a teacher is what is practical for the classroom? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. can we put in our grant to give everyone an Apple watch and measure it that way? And Mm -hmm. then they wear it every day and they're used to it. So it's not something different. Mm -hmm. I worked in a lot of schools that didn't have you know, appropriate funding. And so the thought of like bringing in all those things would be very distracting or just assuming that they would have certain things. Mm -hmm. So these are all kind of things I think about of measuring emotions, not just for like accuracy, but like reliably and practically are really important things to consider as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's incredibly complex. And your article does a really nice job of illustrating how there are certain advantages to having students in collaboration because there's maybe some different opportunities for students to display emotions. But it's also really complex because, you know, my initial emotional expression may be one thing, and then I see someone else respond, and now my expression changes, and it's no longer about the stimulus, it's about their response, and now they respond to my response, and it just all gets complex really quickly. So I think your point's about it being really difficult and needing multiple modalities to gather those data, and then kind of almost a preponderance of evidence type approach, like, well, we've got a bunch of different data points here about the emotion, and it looks like it's probably this. I mean, I think that's that's a very promising way to go. It seems like the only way to go for me at the moment. And you mentioned how those emotional responses then sometimes need to be regulated. So let's kind of switch over to the emotion regulation part of your model. And you talk about a couple different phases and kind of integrate Gross's macro level model. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what happens when groups start trying to regulate their emotions? If they choose to regulate their emotions. Sure, yes. Or if they even realize they need to. That, that's, that's what's yeah, so yeah. important about this model. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see it. There's dotted lines of the like, maybe it, they could do this. And then there's solid lines of like, yes, this happens. And, you know, a lot of times we don't regulate our emotions or, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we talk about regulating them effectively. And so, Mm -hmm. so I would say before I started this project, my focus was on just regulation for my comprehensive exams. I I explored the kind of the formation and, and those kind of things. I was able to see it 
I think, a lot more clearly and understand the regulation at a completely different level. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to think about not only what you're regulating, but also why I'm regulating, what am I targeting? And so Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. regulation stage is incredibly comprehensive, took a very long time. Again, you can see elements of it. You can see Gross's 2015 identification, selection, and implementation stages. You can see very similar SRL model kind of things in there. And what I realized is that how we regulate emotions is different than how we regulate other things. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to capture what those differences were. And I think it's really important to think about these things when you're designing interventions or when you're working with students. And so the first thing I, I kind of looked at was awareness. And I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I'll just be sitting here and my heart rate will be elevated. And I'm like, something's wrong. You know, or Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm not aware of it and I'll just go on about my day or get up and take a walk and I don't even think about it. But then Mm -hmm. other times Mm -hmm. since doing this, surprisingly, those that know me will disagree, but I have actually gotten better at regulating my emotions Mm because I think about like, okay, my heart rate's elevated, what happened, you know, and really then I can address it more completely. Mm -hmm. But the awareness is really important because the self-regulated learning theorists really say that regulation has to be purposeful. It has to be directed. And I argue a little bit that I don't know if that's the case with emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I can regulate my heartbeat without even being aware that I'm anxious or I'm excited. I just know that my heart rate is elevated and I need to lower it. And Mm -hmm. so I do this thing every time my heart rate, I count to 10. That's an automated response. But is it not still regulating your emotions? Right. The physiological response to that? Mm -hmm. And so I added that in. That was the one big controversial thing I added to the model. The other part that really kind of was very interesting was this idea of temporality. Mm. So whether you're aware of past emotions or current emotions or future emotions, which is a thing, right? Like what are future emotions? You know, we, when we were observing students learning in collaborative groups, we saw this kind of discussion of future emotions. And I say this all the time of like, we'll let future Nikki worry about it. (laughs) Oh, poor future Nikki. She hates past Nikki. You know, so this idea of future, like, I know I'm going to be anxious closer to a deadline, right? But that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean I'm anxious now. So how I handle those is very different. And I just don't think that's necessarily the same as some of the other constructs we see in education. And this was really interesting. And this developed kind of as we were analyzing some of that data is that the strategies they were using to control their emotions had a layer of temporality in it. Some of them would plan to regulate their emotions. And as an avid planner, even I didn't know this was a thing. (laughs) And I think, you know, one of the students we saw were like, was really anxious about a test or something. She's like, yeah, I'm going to go home later and cry. Hmm. You're planning to regulate. I mean, it just was like, of course you are, Mm -hmm. you know, or you can enact a strategy now, or you can evaluate a past strategy. And then that example leads into this idea of appropriateness into the, you know, the social components of strategy selection. And so she decided that crying was a good strategy and good honor because, 100% I'm on board with expressing your emotions and feeling Mm -hmm. these things. But she didn't do it then because that wasn't socially acceptable, 
right? Um, I think there was also a, a component of like being by yourself and isolating yourself was a part of that strategy. But again, there's these social implications. And so going back to something you said earlier, if my inclination is to take deep breaths when I'm anxious or when I'm angry, rather, and you say something to make me mad, and then all of a sudden I just start like taking deep breaths or counting to 10, you're like, what is she doing? Or, you know, mm-hmm. or you're gonna be like, oh, I must have said something wrong. There's social implications there, right? Right. And I think one of the other ones, and this, I absolutely, I keep referring to Gross's work. He talked about different strategies. So you talk about the situation modification, situation selection. And mm-hmm. I thought it was so important to bring that into the educational domain because let's say that you have a boss that you don't like. Been there, you know? And mm-hmm. The easiest way to regulate the negative emotions that are caused for working for that person would be to quit, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. But with that comes a new stimulus event of not having any money. You know, so just because it's the best strategy for one thing doesn't mean it's the best for another. And so Mm -hmm. in education, students have much less control, well, one than they should or two than in other situations. But, you know, if you have a teacher you don't like, You can't just leave without repercussions. You know, it might make you feel better in the moment. You are you are addressing the context or you're addressing the stimulus event, but then there's gonna be a new one that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So the educational constraints around classroom, around schooling, et cetera, et cetera, really shape what kind of strategies we use. And then you also have these social norms, like what's socially acceptable. Those are all things we need to think about when we look at the implementation of the strategies that we select. Yeah, I think that those are really great examples. And, you know, it's just so much more complex when there are people around you, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, I could engage in a lot of productive planning about how I'm going to manage an emotion. I could set aside time to cry later and that kind of thing. But if there are people with me and I'm getting kind of teary and they're responding negatively to that, unfortunately, yeah. you know, that might amplify the feeling and make it impossible for me to kind of hold off on this emotion. So your model does a really nice job of talking about how emotions are praised and then lead to these responses and then attempts to regulate them are interactive with the people you're collaborating with. And I think the the final piece I want to talk about in your model, which I think is really important, are these modes of regulation, right? So Sometimes I regulate the emotion. Sometimes someone helps me with it. Sometimes we do it together. Can you talk us through uh, those different modes of regulation and the role they play in socio-emotional regulation? Yeah. So there's a growing literature on social regulation of learning. And mm-hmm. I think one of the first things we saw was uh, Hadwin Yarvala and Miller, the chapter in the edited book of self-regulation learning and performance from 2011. And I remember reading that and just falling in love immediately with this idea mm-hmm. of social regulation. And so social regulation, and, and it's gone through many different terms. I think the phrase was actually coined in their 2018 book chapter. But The standard modes of regulation that you've seen in the literature within the last decade have been self-regulated learning, co-regulated learning, and then socially shared regulation of learning. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are like, but why are you doing self-regulated learning in a collaborative context? And I'm like, because people regulate 
themselves when they're among others, like you just talked about. Like in that moment, sure. unfortunately, you had to suppress your emotions mm-hmm. in order to, again, to meet social standards and to not make things worse for you or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there is self-regulated learning. And then you have this idea of socially shared regulation of learning, which is at a group level. We co-construct our strategies together, or we build on our strategies together. Mm -hmm. And then, so co-regulated learning, which is the more complicated of the three, talks about this kind of transfer of regulation from one to many, or from many to one, or from one to one. And so it's kind of like when one or more students help one or more kind of engage in regulation patterns. And so it's kind of like a scaffolding almost of regulation. And again, that can happen like one person in the group could help the others regulate. Um, Mm -hmm. Could, you know, if if everyone's upset, one person could say, okay, why don't we all just like take a break? Let's, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that four people are helping one. And we saw that when, when that student talked about needing to be by themselves, they kind of tried to cheer them up and, and, and those kind of things. And so for emotions, you know, you see that, right? So this connects to that interpersonal level. And if you and I are experiencing this, the stimulus event differently, if we form different appraisals and we have different emotions, then it might be that our regulation isn't the same. Probably actually. So, you know, so if you're excited and I'm angry, for whatever reason that would happen, you might regulate your emotions by yourself and I might regulate my emotions by myself. It could be that I'm, again, if I'm the one experiencing positive emotions, maybe I co-regulate you to say, okay, so I know you're angry. Let's go through some strategies to kind of help help you regulate this. Or you maybe mm-hmm. help them reappraise something of like, well, I, they didn't mean it, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you can see that too. But the socially shared regulation of learning, it's really hard to if we're feeling different things and we believed it, it's kind of hard to co-construct when we're all feeling different things. It is possible though to have a subgroup. So if I have, let's say like five students in a group, it's possible that you can have socially shared regulation of learning between two people and where they're co-constructing and not involving the other three. Mm-hmm. So and, and so that's that's complicated. And some people, I know some researchers disagree with me where everyone participates, but I, I really look at it of like if, when there are different emotions in a group, you need to consider this. Whereas, so if you go back to the cognitive, it, I feel like it's more likely to be the same across all students. And so regulating mm-hmm. at the group level, I would think would be much more common than say emotions. But again, I think so much of that depends on that context stage. It's always going to come back to the context stage because if we align with, you know, the way we think about things, our our motivation, we have all this prior experience, we're of course more likely to align and have the same appraisals and have the same emotional reaction and, and same regulation tendencies. That makes sense to me. And, you know, goodness knows, 18-year-old Jeff uh, was not very good at aligning his emotional reactions to everyone else in the group. And so uh, attempts to socially regulate emotions in in groups Jeff was in often didn't go well because Jeff would just check out. So again, I think your model does a really nice job of illustrating how emotion formation and regulation develops several layers of not just complexity, but different kinds of processing when it is approached from a group or collaborative 
perspective. And so I think it's really helpful and you really have covered a tremendous amount of literature. And so I encourage everyone to check out your article and get a better sense of all that's going on in collaborative learning when it comes to social emotional interactions. I'm wondering, you know, kind of what do you want to do next? What's the next step for the freckle model and for social emotional formation and regulation research in general? So I'm currently working on publishing the empirical pieces for my dissertation. So I have one that came out um, earlier this year in contemporary educational psychology on the actual socio-emotional regulation strategies using the, the students that I was talking about earlier. And that really looked at like, we used an inductive approach to look at how all these different strategies at different levels. And so that was really exciting to get that published Mm-hmm. And then we also looked at different talk types and how they connected to each of the different levels of the formation and regulation. But I think that the next thing I'm working on currently is documenting the coding procedure that we used for empirical investigation. Mm-hmm. So again, how do you measure emotions? You're going to measure it more accurately if you have a clear observational protocol. And so with the Freckle model, we did that. We looked at each stage and how to code each one and came up with different ways to help us to validate and have more reliability. And so I want to document that and share it so that others can use the same protocol when they're observing emotions in collaborative learning. I think that it's a very accessible way to measure emotions, and I want to share that. That's great. I think that kind of work is so desperately needed. I mean, it sounds like you've done a ton of research and thinking to come up with a scheme that is comprehensive. And goodness knows, if I was trying to code socio-emotional phenomena, I wouldn't want to start from scratch and develop my own scheme. I would like to have someone's scheme <laughs> and, and use that. So I'm glad that you're uh, getting that published and, and continue to do that work. As someone who developed it from scratch, I would not recommend (laughs) unless you just have years to work on a dissertation and nothing else, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's it's work that is much valued, and I don't know that anyone needs to do it again. So that feels like a great place to stop for today. So Nikki, thanks so much for talking with me today. And I really encourage the listeners to check out your 2020 article in Educational Psychologist. The title again is Bridging Gaps and Moving Forward, Building a New Model for Socio-Emotional Formation Regulation. So Nikki, again, Thanks for all your hard work and talking to us about it today. Thank you for having me.